Hi, I'm Paul Ford, and you're listening to Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. And I am joined today by my co-host, Rich Ziotti. Also my co-founder. Rich, in case people don't know, what does Postlight do? We're a digital product studio. We design, architect, build great experiences and the machines that power them. Meaning that uh, you got an app in your hand. That's a nice app. Looks good. Beautiful design. You touch it. It goes and it talks to something and it goes and gets some data for you. You know, maybe you log in or it gives you some recent news or tells you, you know, it's an exercise tracker. So we build the app part. We make it pretty. And then we also built the part underneath, like that runs on the servers that gives you the data. Not to drag this out, but we also work with teams. We should mention that. We've had some great success partnering up with your teams Uh, within your companies. Uh, So that's something we... And that can come in many flavors. We help with design and your engineering. We help with engineering and along with your engineering. So it's... We found nice success there. So it's not uh, a black box. Great. So that ends the commercial portion of the podcast. Yes. Now we're going to get on to the interview portion. And Rich, who do we have in the studio today? We have Jeremy Pam. I think we should start... Jeremy, hello. Hello, Hi. Jeremy. Good morning. Thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure. We should talk about how we met. It was an unusual meeting. It was. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jeremy. Jump in. We got an email cold, and it ha- I think it had an attachment on the email, or you said, do you mind if I send you? No, you sent the attachment. Okay. Which immediately made me think it was coming in from Russia as some sort of virus, but... I read it carefully and I turned to Paul and I said, this looks kind of interesting. And I think it's a human being that wrote the email. Let's see what this is. And I open it up and it's an RFP. Now, Which is a request for proposal, meaning will you write a proposal to do this correct. work? Correct. So for as an, a young agency like us, it's so, we're sort of like, you know, that you see that those, it's a particular strain of dog that walks on top of garbage heaps looking for food. No, I never saw that. Maybe that's not the most flattering description of what we do. But if an RFP comes our way, we're going to open that PDF. Yeah, we're looking for we're looking for opportunity. Sure, we're, at, and we're young. We're, the, we're the other thing too is we don't expect to know what the opportunity is going to look like ahead of time. So we, this this came in the door, and we were like, "Yeah, well, we got it. We got to give it a go." And so, so we open that PDF, and it's weird. Yeah, it was a weird PDF. Well, let's, let's hand it off to Jeremy. We replied to you and said, this is kind of interesting, but this is pretty alien to us. Would you mind telling us more? And then... Right. Well, I should say that that, that was the, the one and only time I have uh, forwarded an RFP uh, to anyone uh, with the idea of possibly collaborating on it. So I was freelancing entirely. I'm glad that uh, you opened the email and that there wasn't a virus attached. Yeah. We're going to get into your background in a second. But like, if you say, hey, cocktails, nice to meet you, Jeremy. What do you do? What do you say in those one or two sentences? Well, I'm currently a research scholar at a, a an institute at Columbia University called the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, which is part of Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs. Um, but I'm not really an academic. 
uh, most of my colleagues at the, at the Institute, and this is something I've just been doing for the last few years, most of my colleagues there are longtime political science, international relations professors. And they have been kind enough to let me kind of hang out and act like a political scientist every once in a while and do a little bit of teaching. But mostly what I am is a practitioner in international affairs. Okay, so wait. So this RFP came in, and and I got to admit, we were kind of fascinated and kind of overwhelmed. And you came in kind of with the RFP and started to, to talk us through it with the idea that we would collaborate. And we didn't. We couldn't get our act together around that RFP. To be, I read to it. Be frank. I said, "Let give me. Let me give me the weekend with this thing." I read it two or three times, and I came away thinking, "We need to make sure that machines don't get smart enough to kill us." I don't want my Roomba locking me out of the house because it has its own plans, and so it was intriguing. Because look, we're technologists, right? We we aspire to do things that are outside of our comfort zone because that's the fun, right? That's the, like, I don't want to build the same thing over and over again. So this thing came in, but it was not outside of our comfort zone. It was about four exits down the highway away from our comfort zone. Well, and there was no easy way to like, for us to get started as a team. But the upshot was we ended up being really interested in and really liking Jeremy. We had a few meetings. I read, well, back up for a second. I read it like four times and I just couldn't, process a lot of what was happening. And so I think I pinged you and I said, do you mind coming in so we can talk about this a little bit? And uh, I think you brought a colleague at one point. We had a couple of meetings on it to really take take a serious look as to whether we can do this. And we ultimately passed on it. This is the stuff Probably for the best. Probably for the best. This is the stuff. Who, like, who would bid on this thing? My assumption is sort of big um, uh, defense contractors, you know, the Lockheeds. uh, Right, right, right. And at one point, I just – I started to think, okay, we need to make sure the drones don't kill us. That was – if I had to boil down the RFP, drones are getting smarter and smarter and at some point they're just going to make a U-turn and they're like, what the hell is this thing doing here over New Jersey? And then here we are. So we passed on it, but we met and had a, a great conversation. It would be great to hear, give us sort of, you know, as you run down your, your, your stack of, of engagements that you've had through your career, give us one that I think will give us a nice flavor of what you've done professionally. Well, one is hard because uh, one of the things about my career is that I have moved from different places that uh, are not obviously connected. I'm not describing that well. But let me let me sort of give you a, a three-point kind of highlight of my trajectory. Um, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I started out... Grew, af- up in, grew up in New York? Yeah, grew up in Queens, went to high school at Stuyvesant downtown, Okay, uh, went away for college, spent a few years as an Air Force uh, officer uh, after college and and a little bit of grad school, but ultimately came back to New York to go to law school. And my first sort of traditional professional uh, experience was as a Wall Street lawyer working for a big international firm uh, on Wall Street. And 
I ended up doing having a very interesting practice there, uh, advising countries during financial crises on restructuring their sovereign debt, which is usually a big component of the crises, and restructuring it uh, was a big part of the solution. What, what is sovereign debt? Sovereign debt is is debt issued by countries uh, in order to raise money for you know governmental purposes. Okay, so I've gone out, I've raised this money, and then I've got I'm I'm the Republic of Kazumistan, and I've gotten into a pickle. I've spent well, it, it could all. just be it could just be I want to build a bridge, right? Yeah, or I got I I I built all those playgrounds. They look great, and now I'm in now I'm in trouble. Jeremy, what do I do? I think it's is that is that right? Yeah, I think I mean that's that's general, uh, yeah. uh, you know, stylized uh, version uh, of of the facts. <laughs> so and who who comes <laughs> to you? To, is it like a finance minister picks up the phone and says, "Hey, big law firm, can you help me out?" <laughs> yeah, it you know. It, you know, there are only so many countries in the world. Um, most of the time, most of them are doing generally okay. But there is are always uh, a few countries that are experiencing uh, a crisis for one reason or, or another, whether it is because of uh, natural disaster. You know, Caribbean countries uh, mm-hmm. are, are famously prone to having their finances uh, thrown off by a big hurricane uh, or something like that. Or it is... Uh, because of international politics, or it's because of just bad management. But countries get into trouble, and the the point. I'm still going back to to your original question. The point at which my career started to get sort of um, it was always interesting, but but uh, I think unusual was that the last big debt restructuring I did as a lawyer was for the government of Iraq. And po- oh wow, okay, so post war. Well, that, I don't know. Are it, we post-war yet? <laughs> well, Mid, mid-wars, right? At least mid-war. Post-intervention. Post-intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, once the government of Iraq had sovereignty returned to it in the summer of 2004. So, so you're not at the law firm anymore at this point? No, I, I was. Oh, you were? Okay. Yeah. And in the summer of 2004, the oh, government okay. of, of Iraq was finally – in a position to start thinking uh, about resolving some of its long-term issues. And they reached out to us to help them with their nego- international negotiations with uh, their creditors. So you do this for a while. Right. So, um, so the, the, the but only- I need to understand what the job is. So they come to you and they say, all right, we, we here we are. We're in this situation. What could you actually do for them? He, he sets up like QuickBooks. No, it's it's not quite not quite like that. It it is, um, and I and I want to try to give a a quicker version of okay. this because it's yeah. not worth getting into the details. I think what lawyers, uh, legal advisors who uh, specialize in sovereign debt advising do is, uh, as you said, the finance minister, the central bank governor, picks up the phone and says we are not going to be able to get out of this financial crisis. We're not going to be able to get into a position where we can resume growth and our economy can recover with the current uh, excessive amount of debt. And you know how the debt reaches an excessive amount and how one defines excessive are obviously uh, complicated questions. But there comes a time for some countries in the life of some countries where they realize that they have no choice but to, but to restructure their debt. And that is an international negotiation because 
it is a country that has borrowed money from private sector uh, purchasers of its bonds who may come from anywhere in the world. So they, they, come, they come by or they call and they have this sort of basket of, of various funds and they've gotten into trouble and they're worried about, you know, the highway project didn't go right and then there was a hurricane or, or we're a new country and we haven't been able to plan well enough. So here's where we are, where we are, and obviously you don't just set up QuickBooks, but do you introduce them to people who can? Re- like, how does the actual restructuring happen? What do I do? Well, fundamentally, it's a negotiation between the debtor, in this case, the, the debtor country, and its creditors. And the creditors can be private, uh, can be banks, can be holders of bonds who which are dispersed. And uh, so, so we're all trying to avoid a default here, essentially. Like we're trying to keep keep someone from claiming bankruptcy. Well, there is no such thing as bankruptcy sure. for countries. Sure. And, <laughs> and so that is the fundamental condition that makes debt restructuring negotiations uh, so interesting. There's no international court that's the equivalent of a bankruptcy judge in a particular country that one can go to and say, I declare bankruptcy. I throw myself upon the mercy of the court. Mm -hmm. You, bankruptcy judge, figure out how to equitably distribute the remaining assets that I have. Because the Germans could have done that after Versailles, but of course they couldn't have. And then we end up in World War II. Okay, so it's a big deal. And and, because it's a country rather than a company, Mm -hmm. uh, a country can't very well just divvy up its assets. Sure. Uh, You know, it it has a fundamental You uh, take my industrial sector and you take my agricultural sector and we'll call it even. That that can't happen. When that's been tried, it hasn't turned out well. Sure. So you're the lawyer and advocate for Iraq at that point who's driving this process forward. They've come to you and they said, we have to talk to all these people and we need a lawyer in the room. Jeremy and your firm, can that be you? Yeah, and I was, I was you know, the junior member of the, the two or three person team that did this. But, you know, we should say immediately that the U.S. government um, had a very strong interest in, <laughs> uh, in, in this negotiation. Sure. And so, it, uh, you know, we worked very closely with them and in many cases – it was the U.S. government that played a driving role. It's like, it's like you pull out of the driveway and you hit the neighbor's lawnmower. Like, look, look, I, this was totally my fault. I will give you the money to get a new lawnmower. Is that a good analogy? Uh, I'm not sure. All right, scratch uh, yeah. that analogy. <laughs> I, I think Forget that, w- that analogy. No. Okay. But, but frankly, I think, I think the <laughs> – What is the lawnmower? I just- it's the, what's the lawnmower? Uh, we need to. We have a vested interest in seeing Iraq succeed. Is sure, of course. To, maybe of course. the lawnmower didn't tell the story well, but go ahead. Yes, uh, <laughs> right. It's uh, and the grass, you know, yeah. represented, uh, you know, party X. Um, I, I think <laughs> rather rather than the details of what a sovereign debt restructuring lawyer did, the the interesting aspect of this is. I think is where it led next, which is that after two years, more or less, of working on uh, on Iraq's debt restructuring as one of their lawyers, the U.S. government, the U.S. Treasury, asked me to join the government and to be the Treasury diplomat in Iraq. So when you say the government, which which government? The U.S. government. They asked you to join the U.S. – represent the U.S. government in this process. you passed your audition. 
I guess I, I wasn't aware that it was an audition at the time, but I guess so, in effect. They said, get us Pam. Pam looks good. Let's yeah. send him over to Iraq. Yeah. You know, more more likely, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I had some relevant, uh, some knowledge of some relevant things. I, I knew some of the relevant parties. You know, the finance minister and central bank governor had been my clients. And crucially, I was willing to accept a job that in- involved me going to live in Baghdad, working out of the U.S. embassy there. So you, you go to the airport, get on a plane and go to the green zone. More or less, Whoa. more or less. And, and you know, it's worth noting that during the previous years of working as a lawyer on Iraq matters, my law firm had never let me go to Iraq. Sure. So, so you get there, and I'm just imagining that they just give you a, an enormous briefcase filled with checks and cash and jewels maybe. No. Not at all. Okay. Gift certificates. No. Fortunately, I, that, that phase of the effort had passed, and— <laughs> And my goal, you know, the broadly speaking, the U.S. saw its role in uh, Iraq as trying to strengthen the government of Iraq. So um, what I'm trying to do is figure out how you get from an office in Iraq without, you know, working, making sure, essentially being a bank to someone who is actively engaged with the technology industry. Someone who is interested and wants to be, who shows up at our door and is like, hey, what do you guys want to talk about? Usually people who show up at our door are like, can you build me a website? Right. A little more than that. A little more than that. Yes, sure. But yes. So what happened in between? I'm assuming you left Iraq at some point because you're sitting here. Sure. Yeah, this is this this all this chapter ended 10 years ago. I mean, the the short answer is that I I spent a, a period of time, kind of a second career after practicing law as a practitioner of international affairs on the government side, initially working for Treasury in Iraq, uh, then working for the State Department in Kabul, and doing some other related projects in and around that time. And the common thread to me when I reflected on them was all of the ways in which well-intentioned and well-funded efforts could go wrong. You know, when you talk for someone for whom Iraq and Afghanistan are big data points, it's impossible to think about that without wondering where did we miss, uh, where, how did we wrongly evaluate the problem set? And what I came away, the conclusion that I came away from those was that there was a common thread of insufficient appreciation of or excessive confidence in our ability to predict how complex societies functioned and were not functioning and could be repaired. And so I came away from this with an interest in complexity and uh, and chaos theory generally as applied to societies and organizations. Very interesting. So not just warfare, not just like places we invade, but actual just society in general. Arguably, post-war, it was, a hard, it was the harder part. I mean, historic, like if you look back on both of those narratives, you know, we've got, you know, the mighty military doing its thing in, in short order, and then the really hard work kicked in. Sure. And, okay, so continue on this path. So it is, what, what I ended up discovering was that 
complexity is is all around us. Um, in fact, some of the most interesting writings on how complexity works in societies had been done focusing on cities, focusing at the city level. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a famous book by the urbanist and political theorist Jane Jacobs called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, where she's focused on New York and how the fabric of New York maintained itself and all of the interactions between uh, storekeepers and par- and parents and school kids that make up a neighborhood fabric, which is itself the neighborhood fabric is an unintended consequence of the individual motivations of each of those actors. Sure. And she was making an argument against an alternative approach to urban planning at the time, a kind of high modernist approach, which says we don't need. Uh, mom-and-pop dry cleaners and grocery stores and bodegas every three blocks. We can just have a shopping district, and we can just have one mega dry cleaners, and everyone can come to that. But what what Jacobs saw and and argued persuasively was that if you just reduced, if you just thought of the city in terms of functionality and the intent of the individual actors, you would lose all of these beneficial unintended consequences, which in fact made the city livable and produced all sorts of uh, other benefits. But also, I mean, and I, I assume you're also talking about just the need to connect, just the need to say good morning. How was, how was your trip to the, the storekeeper down the street? How was your trip back to Greece for a week? Uh, it's good to see you. And, you know, I think you see that in how we embrace ethnic foods in this city and how we embrace uh, just the, you know, the way it's just sort of this splash of culture in all directions coming at it. Um, you know, I have a friend who boycotts Amazon. She refuses to spend any money on Amazon because she feels that, and this is a classic argument that's been made. It's been made against Walmart about how these sort of, you know, monolithic, uh, call them entities that can drop into, you know, uh, anywhere and and within a five-mile radius, everything else can die and that's perfectly okay. But it becomes, you know, you become a lot less connected uh, and a a lot less reasons to connect. You know, uh, my my mom, she said, I'm going to go get your bagels. She'll go out and be gone for three hours and it's noon and I need to eat lunch now. Uh, because she talks to every every storefront. Well, we see it. I live in a in a condo, and lots of people have young kids, and I have young kids, and we've now had four or five years to get to know each other. Yeah. And so there's a snow day, and we autonomously create two hour uh, childcare windows, and the kids just all move from apartment to apartment, and that that ability to interact at that level of complexity emerges out of the building as a system. Yeah. Like, and and most people I know don't have that sort of optionality around childcare, around... You do, Rich, because you stayed essentially connected to an immigrant community and your family so that I've seen you say, call your mom and go like, hey, I'm going out to dinner. I forgot to tell you, can you come by? Yeah, which is my friends envy that. Well, you call her an Uber. I call her an Uber. And I I schedule evening childcare at least a full week ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But this this is also ties back to what I think was a shared experience 
the, an experience that you and I share to some extent, Rich, of growing up uh, in New York in the 80s. And mm-hmm. Paul, it sounds like you were a keen observer of this. Um, well, I would pick up the copies of the Village Voice when I was, you know, fourteen, fifteen, and be like, "What the hell is happening?" Right. And so, what Philly. was what was distinctive? It's not, I, you know, I don't want to suggest that this is unique to to the to this place or that time, but uh, what was distinctive uh, about uh, New York of that time? To me, what jumps out is that you had a very large population of people who lived in the greater New York area, and you had some sort of more or less neutral spaces like Manhattan or like downtown Manhattan in particular, where people, individuals from this large pool could Mm self-select and decide that they want to be part of the post-rock scene around uh, the Mud Club or the early hip-hop scene where the Bronx and uh, Africa Bambata came downtown at the Roxy roller skating rink on uh, 18th Street in Chelsea. And people from various places could come in uh, and be part of fashion, be part of uh, various kinds of art, high art, street art, um, graffiti. And you had all of these sort of spontaneous cultural or subcultural formations yeah. which were not the the intended plan of any one oh, person. No. This is not Robert Moses thinking hip hop's I'm going to set this up for hip hop. <laughs> right, I mean actually this one is... of, one of the one of the one of the very interesting connections to hip hop is that one of the contributing factors to it might have been the destruction of the South Bronx or uh, of parts of the South Bronx by the creation of the South Bronx Expressway. Right. And, and so, you know, a a, right. uh, a a a social theorist, I think, said, you know, I woke up one day and went for a walk around the block and realized that the block was no longer there. Right. And yeah. that unintentionally gave rise to hip-hop, sure. which ended up, you know, changing New York and, yeah. and ultimately the culture of the world. Well, I, and I think that's, you know, at that time, it wasn't cool to live in the Lower East Side. It was, it was a mess. But you gravitated to it. You went there. You hung out there, and then you went home, right? It was all about sort of – we were like fireflies just coming into that city and, and, and just – just doing our thing and then getting out. It's like, and do you want to go to the city? The city was the word. Like, do you want to go to the city? As we someone still, from we Bay still Ridge. say that. Everybody still yeah. says that. You know, the, the interesting thing, too, is like if you look at the history of the technology industry, an enormous amount of personal computing came out of the homebrew computer club in the 70s, which was yeah. a meetup yep. where somebody like Steve Wozniak would show up with this crappy pile of chips oh, glued to a board. It was like in a school gymnasium. And be like, I call out the Apple One. And <laughs> people would be like, oh, that's cool. And that was <laughs> that was about it. Right. Right. Right, and yet the the genealogy of the entire industry goes back to that yep. sort of, and they would just put little flyers up. Yeah, you know the thing that was key too, and this is to your p- friend's point about Amazon, the flyers would be hung up in stores. Like you'd go to buy something that you found interesting, like you know, like a no, maybe you'd buy like a pair of pants that you thought looked cool, and the flyers that were up in the store where you bought the pants were kind of relevant to those pants. <laughs> Right. And and the music would be on the radio. And you'd ask the, it might be a kind of underground radio station, or it might be a, a yeah. radio show that starts at three in the morning. But it was broadcast for the world, and anyone who was interested could learn, could listen to it, yeah. learn about it, yeah. and over time, you know, insinuate 
themselves into that community. Yeah. Now, th- but but this contrast, I think your your connection to the early personal computing culture is is very interesting. But the thing that struck me as I was spending this this year at MIT in sort of surrounded by a tech world is that that openness to spontaneity and unintended mixtures in the the tech world coexists with another hyper rational view which says I'm a programmer I am going to tell these resources precisely what they should do right. and I am going to because I'm a good programmer or I have I have access to good programming resources I feel confident that it is going to do what I tell it to do and not something else and I think that the tension between between that sort of intentionality and the openness to unintended consequences, which can be bad in in the computing world. I guess if they're bad, that's called a bug, but they can also be good, yeah. uh, as in these examples from oh, New York culture. You're, you're bringing up something. There's something I tell the product team that really doesn't come – it comes from more from experience than wisdom, which is if you sat down right now, we're about to launch the product. If you sat down right now and, and ranked the top 10 feedback points we're going to get, I assure you, you'd get the great majority of them wrong because the human aspect of it, right? And that's what we're, that's what we're grappling with. As a technologist, I want to cut you out of the picture. I haven't picked up the phone to order food in five years, right? Like I'm trying to cut the human chaos out of the picture. In fact, I'm trying to automate it all. Like that's my, that's how I, I, I sell it under convenience, Right and efficiency, which means things will get cheaper because instead of eleven people along the chain, I need three or whatever. But that is my aim. That is my goal. Well, but, this is how the tech industry gets itself in trouble over and over because its model, its mental model of humanity, is that humanity is ultimately going to behave rationally. It expects people to kind of follow the rules that are set forth in the product. Yeah, exactly. And instead, somebody gets a screwdriver and like <laughs> opens up the iPhone and is like, right. whoa, look at this camera. It's crazy. Exactly. And you, Apple's great that way. You can actually see that tension in how they continually find new ways to seal their devices, both kind of electronically and also physically, yeah. away from prying fingers. And, and their care for design and aesthetic is so high that they're like, you know what? I will just lull you. You will just fall in love and just accept. Well, for the vast majority of people, that's fine. Because this is not the thing. They're not going to build a community on top of the technology. They're going to just use it and kind of get the experience they they want and then go from there. But there's a minority that wants to actually look inside and understand how it works and and connect with other people about it. And they fight back. They get angry. Does this make you – a real quick question. Mm. Does this make you sad a little bit? Like a little – or is that just nostalgia – the world of that that it's all we feeling st- heading towards more and more sterile. You know, there's more points of connection and interaction, and more abilities for individuals to find each other and create communities than ever before. But the sort of serendipity between commerce and culture and walking down the street is lost. Yeah, you guys had more of that as kids growing up in New York City. Yeah, but I think I think that there is an opportunity to sort of seize some of these concepts and 
and and sort of redefine them in order to to perhaps preserve a little bit of of the good things of what we're talking about. And I'll give you a very concrete example. When I was working on Iraq and on Afghanistan and things were not going according to plan and there were policy reviews and people said, okay, we've got to figure out what went wrong so that we can get it – now we can finally get it right. One of the suggestions, uh, and this was the first time I'd heard this concept, was that we could get it all right if we took a design approach, if we used design thinking – to develop better strategies for strengthening weak states. Oh boy! And you know I, wow. that was that was that was interesting. And I thought, where does this design thinking come? And it sort of brought me. It, it led in, in in various chains to uh, to some people at MIT who had been who had been at MIT. But I think that there are sort of two conceptions of design. One conception of design is the kind of Apple one that you're talking about, which is we are going to create a hermetically sealed environment in which you have exactly the experience we want you to have and you are not authorized or able to have any other kind of experience. And maybe that can work to a certain degree for a certain amount of time. But I think that there's another conception of design which – acknowledges the inevitability of happy accidents and which uh, acknowledges the inherent unpredictability of the results of complex interactions and which therefore kind of embraces uh, that uncertainty and, uh, and teaches us a degree of humility about it. So in, you know there's a kind of one version of design is everything happens as we want it to and the other version of design is you know the the most fundamental design lesson that is that we know we can't fully design in the sense of dictate anything. Right. And I think if people who do design work whether tech based or otherwise and people interested in design thinking can put more emphasis on the inherent unpredictability and the necessary humility that comes with that, then perhaps we would be pushed in a different direction. Well, you know, I'm hearing this and I, and I, I wish that had an, you know, a name, right? Like, is there a name for that? Like, I, I have not heard this case, this particular strain of design. I'm inspired by it and I think it's great. And it makes me think of my space. Um, but well, the design thinking movement is a real movement. I mean, that's no, a, but like this, this, this second strain that he's talking about, which is embrace the chaos a bit, because what we do, for what everything that we do as technologists is driven by getting you to do X. Like, how am I going to get you to do it? And stop going off the the rails here. Like, you keep drifting left or right. I need you to just do X. So I I'm obsessed with creating the optimal experience that's going to keep you on the rails. Right. That's that's really considered great design. In but, fact. but isn't some of what you do, and I, you know, I, I am sort of imagining this, some of what you do is providing a set of tools mm-hmm. that users can use in various ways. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, each individual tool you, you want, for each individual tool you want them to have a yeah. good experience. Yeah. But providing people with a set of tools that they can use in various ways. Sort of more is, open-ended, yes, you're saying. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is, you know, this reminds me of uh, Will Wright and how he affected, he's a video game designer. He made SimCity and SimEarth. Yeah. Earth and There's no ending. They were just these open-ended the experiences where you built a city 
and it would just be there and there was no there was no moment of like oh you the end you've arrived you killed the big boss there's no big boss and they were massively successful because people they were you're right they were creative tools in in a sense with you know their own constraints and whatnot and i guess my last question for you guys would be i think earlier you you mentioned in passing rich sort of the role that experience uh plays into this and and i couldn't help but think about that uh, during this year that I was at MIT where, you know, you've got a large number of young undergraduates who are uh, sort of tackling problems uh, with tremendous brain power, but tackling problems pretty fresh because they're, they just have sure. don't, don't have that much experience. And, you know, this this impression that I have of the tech world, perhaps more uh, applicable to the West Coast than to New York of, you know, sort of driven by youth. Uh, where people are actively discouraged from being burdened by experience and mm-hmm. uh, and thinking about the past. And one of the things I appreciate about your podcast, about this podcast, is that you are often you you often have guests and talk uh, uh, talk about the history of tech and you know going back twenty and thirty years. And so uh, you know maybe part of this this alternative conception of design would be one that also recognizes the value of experience and mm-hmm. uh, and that it's actually it's not always a bad thing to have some people with some uh, some history who can yeah. say you know we tried that you know in you know 10 years ago and here's what what didn't work about it rather sure. than constantly trying to attack uh, well, I think I mean the history of technology is is human history right but the technology industry itself focuses on the platforms and these the sort of specific skills and the frameworks that are available at that moment that are driving the maximum revenue. So everyone's very excited about machine learning right now, not because of its great, it's not even particularly new. It's just very effective against the current problems that we have and the data that we have. Yeah. So, so yeah, the prioritization is always off because it's so revenue driven, and and that lets makes it very easy to believe that the most new, shiny, exciting stuff is the the right stuff, the most important stuff. So yeah, we're going to wrestle with that probably for the rest of our careers. <laughs> yeah, it's a good observation, by the way, because even though we've been doing this for twenty years, we're still motivated by causing trouble. Like that is a big driver around why we do what we do. Like this this business was not created. Uh, as an end to just make money. If uh, you don't feel like you're getting away with something, it's not worth doing. <laughs> That's our slogan. Yeah. Well, uh, we only really touched on about 1% to 2% of what makes Jeremy Pam, Jeremy Pam. But uh, I hope everyone got a little bit of a sense of just how big and weird the world is, which I think is what always strikes me when we talk. Like, this was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for coming. Too. In. Thank you. Thanks. Rich, that that there's a lot going on there. You know, it, there is a lot going on. We could have just kept going, but I I love to stray away from our our little bubble here, and this was a great stroll. It's a big old world, yeah. And technology is yeah. all over it, so it it's is. good to, good to think that through. And, and, and like, the design discussion was great. I'll be thinking about that conversation for a while. All right, well, look. This is Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio in New York City at 101 Fifth Avenue. If you need us, if you want anything at all, Rich, what do you do? If you just want to talk to us, hello at postlight.com. Hello at postlight.com. Rank us five stars on iTunes if you're in the mood and anything you need, let us know. We'll see you soon. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.